Okay, let's open up our Bibles today to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 22. The king comes in and cleans house. All right, have you uh, ever had a time in your life, or do you ever remember, like, when you were so excited about something that you just could hardly contain it? Yeah. So I was watching YouTube videos of kids that could not contain their excitement. And that's just kind of a fun thing to do before church. If you ever want to just Google something or YouTube it, I was going to bring videos, but I didn't. But you can just imagine, right? You've seen, and then I was watching dogs that couldn't contain their excitement when their owners came home. You know what I mean? And I think about that. And, uh, you know, Erin was so excited about something a couple of weeks ago. Back here, we were having fellowship conversation with somebody, and she almost blurted something out that somebody else didn't know. And she wasn't, you know, she couldn't contain her excitement, you know? And, And so that's kind of how it is today we see in this passage, right? The people that have been following Jesus closely for three years, every time Jesus would do something cool, what did he say to them? Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody about it. Can you imagine? I mean, Jesus is changing lives. Don't tell anybody. Well, today, they can finally just let it rip. They can just let the praise and the adoration just go. And he receives it, and it's a beautiful picture. So... Last week of Jesus' life before the cross, this is the beginning of what is called Palm Sunday, or it's called Holy Week, and it starts with Palm Sunday. That's where we're at in the scriptures. So you might wonder, where did we get Palm Sunday and, uh, you know, Monday, Thursday, and, and all these different days of Holy Week? Well, we're going to look at them through the next, you know, month or so. But today is the beginning of Holy Week as far as the scripture, where we're at in the scripture. And it begins with Palm Sunday. Now, what we're going to see, there are three main parts in this uh, message here. We're going to see Jesus come into Jerusalem as the long-awaited Messiah. He's going to receive praise uh, from his people. We're also going to see Jesus cleansing the temple. And then we're going to see Jesus curse the fig tree. And it's because he doesn't like Fig Newtons. No, Aaron doesn't like Fig Newtons, though. Just if you're ever going to get her a gift. Uh, that wouldn't be a good one. We need to know Jesus as the lowly, humble king. We need to welcome his ministry of cleansing in our lives, and we need to abide in him so we produce fruit. I'm going to say that again because that's kind of the main thrust of where we're going. We need to know Jesus as the humble, lowly king that he is. We need to welcome his ministry of cleansing, and we need to abide in him so we produce much fruit for his kingdom. And we're going to see these things in this message. Pick it up at Matthew chapter 21, (coughs) verse 1. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. 
And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who were before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Father, as we look in your word today, we do ask again that you'd make the book live to us and speak to us, Father. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, who is the teacher that makes the word into our hearts, gets it into our lives, Lord. And we welcome you. We welcome you to teach us through this message here today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus enters Jerusalem, and first of all, he sends his disciples to get a donkey. So it says right there in verse 1, when they drew near Jerusalem. So the disciples and Jesus are now heading into Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Now, you've heard of the Passover festival. It's the annual Jewish festival that commemorates the exodus out of Egypt. You know, in the book of Exodus, God raises up Moses and Israel is, you know, in slavery in Egypt and, and Exodus means going out from, that's what it means. And so God raises up Moses and Moses brings them out of Egypt. And so the Passover is the commemoration of the Exodus, right? You guys remember the last plague, uh, the 10 plagues that were upon Egypt. The last one was, um, God says the death angel is going to come through the city and he's going to kill all the firstborn, everybody that doesn't have the blood of the spotless lamb on their doorpost. And the, but the ones that do have the blood of the spotless lamb on the doorpost, the death angel will what? He'll pass over those homes, right? And the, the, the figuring is Christ. The ones now today that have Christ's blood over their life, the death angel passes over. But in these days, that was the thing. And so that's why it's called the Passover. And now Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And going on, uh, they're coming into this city uh, of Bethphage. I've heard people pronounce it Bethphage. Um, you can do what you want with it. Um, it's on the southeastern slope towards the bottom of the Mount of Olives. It's called the Mount of Olives because it's a mount covered with olive trees. And he says, you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. So Jesus sends two disciples probably into Bethany, which was right near Bethphage, Bethphage, however you want to say it. And so he probably sends them into Bethany and to get a donkey and her little colt. Okay. Now, Mark and Luke, if you've paid careful attention to the Gospels and you've compared them, you notice Mark and Luke, uh, they note that this cult has never been written, never been written before. And so probably the mother's brought along with it to keep the little one calm, you know. And um, none of the other Gospel writers mention, though, the mother donkey. And I, I just bring that up because critics of the Bible, sometimes they say, oh, see, he's, he mentions the mother of the donkey and the other ones don't. Bible's fake. It's like, well, if all three of us saw an event or if, say three or four of us saw an event and you asked us to give the report, uh, there's going to be differences in each of them. And, and the other ones obviously just chose to comment on the one that Jesus rode and not a big deal. Now, if anyone says anything to you, he says, and that's exactly what happened, right? In Mark's account, it says, uh, the guys came up to him and said, what are you doing loosing the colt? And he says, the master has need of it. And they said, okay, go ahead and take it. So now, 
it's unclear how Jesus knew all this would happen, that the donkey was there and the mother and all this stuff and how he knew that people would be questioning them. Maybe he had it arranged with the donkey owner before. doesn't really matter. People actually write huge papers about this and debate, is this the omniscience of Jesus or is it? It doesn't really matter. Um, but somehow or another, Jesus knew that there'd be a donkey and, and waiting and sends two disciples and they question, and then, but then they let the donkey go. Now, we find it interesting that Jesus would choose a colt, a foal of a donkey, to ride into Jerusalem to announce that he is the long-awaited Messiah, that he is the king. We find that kind of interesting. Because typically when kings rode into cities, it was on huge steeds, and it was a huge procession. And that's the way kings do things, is they do them in a grand procession, pomp. You guys know that song, Pomp and Circumstance, right? You guys remember how it goes? That's the graduation, you know, Pomp and Circumstance. And a lot of people, fanfare, fanfare, all those things. And so I'm the king and I'm coming in and, and uh, King Vitamin or, you know, or whatever his name uh, I think in a Mr. Rogers neighborhood, uh, when the, the trolley went into King, King Friday, yeah, not King Vitamin, sorry, wrong one. Okay. Now, so it's interesting that Jesus would choose a, a, a donkey, you know, to go do this. It was a symbol of peace. It was a symbol that he was a king, but he's a peacemaker, right? And it's a symbol of humility. It's a symbol of lowliness, right? And we need to know Jesus as a humble king, as somebody that's lowly, that he's not somebody that comes in and, you know, like he, he's not, it's not his personality. You know, Jesus is truly coming back in his second coming to bring judgment. If you've read the book of Revelation, starting at chapter six, for a long time through the rest of the book, that's, I don't want to see, I don't want to be Jesus' enemy at that time. But when he came in his first coming, he came lowly, humble. He's a humble king. All this was done. You say, why was this done? Well, good. It says in chapter, in verse four, why this was done. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. That word fulfilled. See, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience and he's presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And so he's continuing with that style to point out how Jesus is the fulfillment of the things that the prophets had said. Now he gives this quote combining the words of Isaiah and Zechariah. So where the sentence starts, all this did that it might be fulfilled. I'm going to tell you three things that were fulfilled on Palm Sunday. This is, you know, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. I'm going to give you three things that were fulfilled. The first one is found in the book of Isaiah, and you see it in the sentence there where it says, tell the daughter of Zion. Do you see that in our passage? Tell the daughter of Zion. In the passage in Isaiah that that comes from, it says, tell the daughter of Zion, which is just another way of talking about Jerusalem, that salvation is coming. You can read about it, Isaiah 62, 11. It's tell the daughter of Zion that salvation is coming, okay? Now, the other prophecy that's fulfilled here is in Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, and here's how it reads. 
says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, the, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Okay, so Isaiah 62, 11, Zechariah 9, 9 are fulfilled in Christ's, what he's doing right here. He sends his disciples, go get this donkey, I'm gonna ride on the colt, we're gonna go into Jerusalem. Two prophecies fulfilled. I told you that I was gonna give you three things that were fulfilled. Here's the third. This is also the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy of the 69 weeks. Now, I'm not going to get into this, even though I was really tempted and I had a whole bunch of stuff that I deleted out of my notes because I'm trying not to preach for two and a half hours. But um, if you want to do the math, read through Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, and I'll give you a, a brief synopsis of it. Essentially, there's a line in there that Daniel prophesies when the Messiah will be cut off. And he says that the Messiah will be cut off from a certain, at a certain time that is measured by a decree that a king gives. Now, this decree is for the temple in Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And that's going to happen on a certain day. And you read about it in the book of Nehemiah. This king, Artaxerxes, he tells Nehemiah, he says, there's a decree to go rebuild the temple. And we know what date that is because it tells us in Nehemiah. But then Daniel, in his prophecy, says something fascinating. He says, from that day that that decree happens, there will be a period of time for the Messiah to be cut off, which refers to the, what do you think? Crucifixion. Crucifixion. And it also says he'll be cut off, but what? but not for himself, right? Because he died for the sins of the world. So you, if you want to do the math, Daniel's 69 weeks deal with seven-year periods. Each week here is a seven-year period. All the evangelical scholars widely agree because the Hebrew word translated weeks can mean either day, week, month, or year. Um, it lends to the meaning of being a year. And so you look at 69 weeks, and so you say that's 69 seven-year periods. And so you add that all up, or you times that up, it comes to 483, all right? And then now you need to find out exactly how many days to figure out what day Jesus is riding in on the donkey. So you would take 483 years times, who's tracking along here, Anybody? No, you wouldn't do 365. See, I was trying to get you to say that because there's 365 days in the year. But where was the prophecy given to Daniel, actually? In Babylon. So you wouldn't use the 365-day calendar. You would use the Babylonian calendar where there's 360 days. So 483 years divided by 360 tell, or times 360 tells you exactly how many days until the decree from Artaxerxes, until the day that Messiah is cut off, you can find out exactly what day this is here. Conservative scholarship says it's April 6th of 32 AD. So I did my best to keep that in two minutes or less. If you're like, I don't know what the guy just said, it's okay. So that would put Jesus' crucifixion right on Passover on the 10th day of Nisan, which is the... Uh, it's a Jewish month. Um, so Passover was 10 of Nisan, which Jesus' crucifixion was most likely right on 10 of Nisan. That would fulfill the whole typology of Jesus being um, the Passover lamb. Paul says he's our Passover lamb. It also fulfills Danny, Daniel's 69 weeks um, prophecy. So I want to give a 
application to you for a second. You know, one of the greatest proofs that the Bible is the word of God, maybe you come here every week and you say, I don't know, these guys are pretty convinced the Bible is the word of God. I don't understand. Fulfilled prophecy is one of the most strongest proofs for the authenticity that the Bible was written by some supernatural source. Because let me ask you this, who could write about hundreds of things over thousands of years and predict things and they come true? Who could do that? So I tend to believe uh, that it's a supernatural book because of that, a bunch of other reasons as well, but that's a very strong proof for the divine origin of scriptures, fulfilled prophecy. I just gave you three right here in Jesus coming into Jerusalem, uh, the Isaiah 62, 11, Zechariah 9, 9, and Daniel 9, um, fulfillment of the 69 weeks prophecy. So those that knew their Bible this day, when they saw what Jesus was doing, they were like, this is the Messiah. Like they knew the signs. They knew the scriptures. And because they knew the scriptures, they were able to interpret Jesus' behavior and say, this is the Messiah. And they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And that's our next, uh, moving on to verse seven there. Uh, they brought the donkey to him, the colt. They laid their clothes on them. Now that was a sign of homage, right? They're taking their clothes and they're, they're putting their outer garments on this donkey, making a makeshift saddle for their king. Great multitudes spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Okay, did you, did you guys notice that? Verse eight, got your Bible open there. Great multitudes spread their clothes on the road and then others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. What do you think, what do you think uh, that led to there, the cutting the branches down? Is, is that why we call it, do you think that's why we call it Palm Sunday? It's right there. Right? So you wonder, I, why do they call it Palm Sunday? Oh, it's verse 8. They cut down branches from the trees, and they spread them on the road. So they're paying great homage to this king. All these people are openly worshiping Jesus Christ. You know, I think it's really cool. Can you put yourself in that situation? Like, now is the time, and you're with this group, and you're already on the way to Passover. All the Jewish males had to come there. All the, it was a pilgrimage feast. There's this huge procession going, and here's the Messiah, and everybody can praise him openly together, you know? You ever been to a Christian concert, like Rise Fest or something like that? And you know that feeling where everybody's together? Like I've only been to one like big Christian concert. I saw Phil Wickham and like, oh my gosh, I love Phil Wickham. Uh, yeah. And so it's something about being in a room with like 5,000 people and you're, you're all praising that Jesus is Lord and he's, you know, and uh, that's what they're doing here. What a beautiful thing. They, uh, they, they put their clothes on the road so he can walk over them. I remember in Bugs Bunny cartoons, they used to do that. Like if some like, rich dignitary was coming or something, a guy would take off his coat and put it on the ground. Like, you know? And they're all paying homage to Jesus. They're all in the company of one another worshiping. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna, as I've said before, means save now we pray. If you want to read Psalm 118, that's where the term comes from in the, in the Bible. Uh, and so as they're saying about Jesus, Hosanna to the son of David, Jesus is allowing that. That is significant because in Psalm 118, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna is applied to Yahweh. 
in that psalm. Now Jesus is allowing the multitudes to say Hosanna about him. See what that is significant? There are people that will say Jesus never claims to be deity in the Bible directly. He does. And things like this. Jesus is allowing praise that is only fitting for God. Significant. Now, the thing that's pretty interesting about all this praise when Jesus is coming in to Jerusalem is it's pretty fickle because if you've read the end of the story, it turns from Hosanna to the son of David to crucify him by the end of the week. Sad. Because he doesn't really fulfill their expectations, right? And when you're reading Mark's account of this, it says in Mark 11, verse 10, here's what they say. Mark records this. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Did you notice the difference there? Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. They thought that Jesus was going to bring the kingdom right then and there. That they're probably saying, save us now from Roman occupation. That's probably the hearts of the people there. It's not save us from our sins, as we'd like to think. It's probably save us from Roman occupation. And because Jesus doesn't come in and do exactly what they think he should, you know, by the end of the week, they're saying crucify him. This brings up a really good application for anybody here. Jesus didn't live for the praise of men. He didn't live for the adoration of people. Living for the appreciation and acceptance of others is a tough life. Because the praise of man is fickle. Like if, you give it, if you're one that's really controlled by peer pressure... And you're, if you're really, really concerned about what your friends think of you, you know, that's a tough master because one week your friends are going to like you and the next week, especially when you're young, especially when you're like, you know, teenager or just preteen. Remember that time of life? Because it's like people change so easily. And so if you live for the appreciation of people, your happiness goes up and down all the time. But if you live for the appreciation of God, and you have a steady sense of security and well-being, right? Jesus didn't live for the appreciation of others, and a good thing, too, because, you know, the praise of man is fickle at best. Number two, Jesus cleanses the temple. So he's come in. Now he's going to clean house. Verse 12, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Right? So I've got some pictures of the temple here I want to show you just so you can get an appreciation of this. When, I mean, think of this. They're going to Passover. We're talking hundreds of thousands, thousands upon thousands of people going into Jerusalem on this pilgrimage, going to this temple, and, and they're going into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And they go to this uh, temple here. Oh, that's not a good picture. I'm sorry. Okay, maybe another one. <laughs> these are not good. Are these all like that, Isaiah? Yeah, well, I, I know it's not your fault or anything, but... Hmm, good grief. So those of you that played Nintendo, like, 
we'll have no problem with this because it looks just like Nintendo. Well, this is the center, okay, of the temple where the worship was done, where the high priest would go in. And then there was a court outside of there that was for, uh, you know, the priests and everything. And outside of there, on both sides, huge uh, courts called the Court of the Gentiles. So on this Temple Mount, today the Temple Mount, there's actually a mosque there, a Muslim mosque. Um, but actually where this sat um, is in this, on the top of this hill, it's called the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And this was a huge, huge facility. You can't even imagine. And out in the court of the Gentiles, what they would do is they would have people that were operating like currency exchange booths, okay? Because when to worship God and to bring your offering, all of the Roman coins, none of them were accepted. The only thing that was accepted was the Jewish half shekel. So you had to bring your money in and you had to exchange your money in order to worship Yahweh at the temple. Now that's, a, that's an okay service, right? I mean, probably a needed service. But the problem was why Jesus calls them thieves is they were charging like hundreds and hundreds of percent interest on all of these transactions. So they turned this into a place of commerce and money-making, right? Now, where it says those who sold doves, same thing. You would come and you would bring animals to be sacrificed in the worship of Yahweh, right? Now, here's the thing, though, is the animals that were sacrificed had to be perfect specimens, or else they weren't accepted. So you would get to the temple, and the animal inspectors would look at your animals and say, nope, flawed, you've got to buy some of our official temple doves. And they would sell the doves, and they say sometimes even 400% markup on these things, you know, 20 times, you know, huge fees. So history tells us, Josephus, that the Sadducees, essentially were in control of the temple and this was a racket they were running, right? They had turned the worship of God into a way, uh, they commercialized it. They turned it into a way to make money. And so Jesus said, you took my father's house and you turned it into a den of thieves, right? Pretty interesting glimpse of Jesus here, right? If you've grown up in Sunday school, you think of Jesus, lowly Jesus, meek and mild, and he's always like holding the, the kids and the lambs are like around his neck. And, but this is a picture of Jesus you may not be familiar with. This is one where Jesus is righteously angry and he's flipping over tables and he's throwing people out of the temple. Interestingly enough, he did this a couple of years ago and you read about it in the beginning of the Gospel of John. And so I think it's kind of fascinating that Jesus rid the temple one time of its commercialism, but sin unchecked comes right back into the temple, doesn't it? Same thing happens in your own life. You can repent of some sin, you can turn from it, but sin unchecked, like if, if you don't really deal with it, it'll come right back into your life. I think it's interesting that Jesus drove out those who bought and sold. It wasn't just the ones that were selling. It was also the people that were buying this religious commercialism that were guilty in the eyes of God. Now, just a quick comment. 
you wonder what Jesus thinks of some of the things that the church does today, where people have turned it into a way to make money. You know, I'm trying to sell my book here, I'm trying to trying to sell this new 10 parts, you know, you turn on TBN and you watch some guy that's up there claiming that he's got like the prophetic secret book, right? And God's revealed this to me only. And I'm going to tell you how all the things are going to turn out in this whole world. And then Sid Roth comes on and goes, there's a miracle about to happen. If you send me $20 right now, I'm telling, wait, no, wait, God's telling me it's $30 right now. You got to send it right now. I'm telling you, Jonathan Kahn up here and everybody, it's all right now. Send me the money right now. Are you going to miss a blessing? Oh yeah. They've turned the house of God into a den of thieves. Right? And Jesus would, I don't think Jesus is happy with that kind of stuff. Praise God for the cleansing ministry of Christ that comes through the church and rids it of its gimmicks. Gimmicks are just a terrible witness to the world around too. You know, you have honest people seeking the Lord and they come to the church and they see corny and they see gimmicks and they can see right through people's facade. All these people are just trying to make money, man. And they don't want anything to do with the church because of these thieves, you know. And praise the Lord that he cleanses the temple. Now, here's a good application for us. The worship of God needs to be as God intends. You've turned my father's house into a den of thieves, but he said my father's house should be a house of prayer. Jesus is saying God wants to be worshipped a certain way. Right? In our individualistic culture that we live in today, it's me, myself, and Irene, or me, myself, and I. Sorry, that's a Jim Carrey movie. Jeez, oh, Pete. This culture that we live in, especially you young people, you're just being bombarded with this, like it's all about me culture. And I mean, we're all bombarded, not just the young people, all of us. This, we have to understand that the worship of God has to be how he wants it. It's not supposed to be this subjective thing where you say, I worship God how I want to. I worship God by watering the flowers. So I don't go to church, you know? I don't, I'm not involved with all this stuff. Well, listen, you can worship the God, you know, God while you're watering the flowers well enough. That's great. But you also have to be involved with the things that he prescribes, right? Worship needs to be done God's way. That's a good reminder for us in 2022 because we want to do things our way, you know? We're like Frank Sinatra's. I did it my way, yeah, right? And that's, what you, that's your anthem. Well, you have to do it God's way if you want to be uh, right with God. Worshiping God is not an opportunity to be self-serving. And there are certainly people that that's how they approach it. They just think, I'm going to just take my family and myself to church and I'm going to get fed and I'm going to get filled and it's just us over here in the corner. You've turned it into something that's self-serving. Right? And you can't do that with the worship of God. It's not supposed to be something that's self-serving. We're to be serving Jesus, right? And his people. So look what happens then. This is beautiful. Then, verse 14, the blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So he comes in and cleans house. There goes the, the phonies, the thieves, and here come the needy. And Jesus starts ministering to them and starts meeting their needs. That's a beautiful picture. This is one of my favorite places of scripture. Out with the bogus stuff and bring in like really what this is all about. You know, I love that. 
But, verse 15, don't you hate that? But, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? I'm sure Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, I do hear what they're saying. And Jesus said to them, yes, have you not read out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? Then he left them and he went out of there to the city of Bethany and he lodged there. So the religious, supposedly the anointed spiritual people, they, they're like, Jesus, do you hear these kids praising and worshiping you? And he's like, like, maybe he should make them stop, you know? And Jesus is like, yeah. And then he says to the religious professionals, have you never read Psalm 8 verse 2? Because that's what he's talking about. I love it when Jesus asks the religious professionals if they understand how to apply and interpret the Bible that they say they know. I love that. And then Jesus quotes Psalm chapter 8. And that quote, that thing in Psalms, is applied to Yahweh. But guess who Jesus applies it to? To himself. Beautiful. So then uh, he goes out of there and he stays at Bethany and he goes to the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Interesting uh, little side note that during this last week of Jesus' life, this terrible time, you know, he's got purpose. He faces what he's got to do, even though it's terrible. And he stays at this house in Bethany. It's interesting that the name Bethany means house of misery or depression. And so I can't really articulate the thought that I had about this, but it was like, even in the midst of being in the house of misery and depression, like there's still, Jesus is there. You know? I think there's an application for you today in that, that even in the midst of your depression and anxiety and misery and all this stuff going on, that Jesus can be there, right? I think that's really important. Number three, no, finally, Jesus curses the fig tree. Uh, Now in the morning, as he returned to the city... He was hungry. Where it says now in the morning, so what day are we on of Holy Week? Monday, day two, good. Okay, and it says he was hungry. And he saw, and seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. Now, whoa, Jesus, like, Haven't you heard that like trees are protected and stuff? Like, why are you, you know? People give Jesus a bad time about what he did to the the, uh, tree here. You know, he cursed the tree and like, why are you cursing trees, Jesus? But it is kind of a weird thing, right? Like, why did Jesus go curse the fig tree? So it's really a living parable. He's giving a living parable. The the thing that he's doing here is like a metaphor. It's It's a picture of something. Now, the fig tree, Israel is referred to as a fig tree in the Old Testament in a few places, at least two of them, Hosea uh, Hosea 9, uh, verse 10, and Joel, chapter 1, verse 7. So if you get your concordance in the Bible and look up fig tree, and you see in the Old Testament, you're going to find a lot of places that Israel is likened to a fig tree, and a barren fig tree a lot of times, right? Also, in the book of Isaiah, there's this very familiar picture of a vineyard. God looks at Israel, his people, as a vineyard. Uh, 
Now, the idea is that Israel was supposed to produce fruit, um, godliness, but they didn't. They turned after idols and um, they became corrupt. And so that's why in the Old Testament you see this terminology of you know, Israel being the barren fig tree, right? It's like you go out in your backyard and you say, I don't know, I planted this apple tree here and it's supposed to have apples on it and it's not producing anything, right? Now that's how God looked at his people in the Old Testament. I planted this vineyard, Israel, and they're supposed to be producing godliness and fruit, but they're not producing anything, right? Now, this is interesting because this fig tree here, according to one scholar, the early figs start in the spring before the leaves develop. So, if Jesus sees a tree, that a fig tree that only has leaves but no figs, there's a problem. It should have fruit on it. And so this is a living parable. You see, Jesus is essentially, this is a picture of the judgment that's coming on Israel. You know, the, the most immediate one is 8070 when they get sacked by, you know, the Roman Empire just comes in and destroys everything, right? Turn over to John chapter 15 for a second in your Bible, please. John chapter 15, starting at verse 1. You see, God intends for his people to produce fruit. Right? Say, what's God's will for my life? It's that you produce fruit. It's part of it. Okay, starting at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch that is in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them up and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit." So you, uh, so you will be my disciples. You see, God's desire, he looks at you as like a branch that is connected to a vine. And the vine, that's rooted in Christ, in God. And as you're rooted in Christ as this branch, fruit comes out of your life, right? When you're connected, what is that fruit? Well, we'll talk about that in a second. But that is God's desire that you as a branch stay connected to this vine so that he can produce fruit through you. Now, here's the application today, right? There are a lot of Christians that have leaves, but no fruit. And the leaves are like a profession of faith, right? They're like, I say I'm a Christian, I do the things that look Christian, but yet there's not really spiritual fruit in their life. 
right? And the, when Jesus comes to this tree that just has leaves on it and isn't producing any fruit, he just curses it as a picture. It says, this kind of life, this is cut off. This isn't going to work. So when God comes to a Christian that says all the right things but doesn't produce any fruit, there's no fruit being produced in their life, um, you know, that's a problem. There are many that claim to be Christians but show no evidence that they are truly born again, Right? It is those that are growing in living like Jesus that show the evidence that they are abiding in Jesus, that they're connected to Jesus. How do you know if you're a true Christian here today? Because you are growing in the likeness of Jesus. So simple. What kind of fruit? Well, Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Listen. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Then he goes on to give other descriptions of what love is. And he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Now let me describe it for you. Peace, long-suffering or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those aren't different fruits. Those are all the fruit of the love that God puts in you when he comes and lives in you. That is the fruit of the fruit, singular, of the Holy Spirit living in your life. How do you know if you're abiding in Jesus and the vine today, in him? How do you know you're abiding? Because these things are being produced in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Say, I really, really lack self-control. Seem to always blow up on people. I seem to be an angry person. Okay, well, there's a couple of things. Like, are you growing more like this? Are you becoming more like this? Because if you're not becoming more like this, chances are maybe you're not abiding, you know? What does it mean to abide? Well, the Greek word is the word meno, M-E-N-O, abide, okay? And, and what it has to do with is, think about this. If you're driving your car down the street and you see a stop sign, man, by my house there's this stop sign and, the, and people don't stop at it. And the inner legalist in me that wants to control everybody's behavior, like I want to sit down there and like put those like chain with nails across the thing and like I just want to, you know, whoops, you know? I mean, because I think I got to correct people, you know, because I'm a legalist, you know, like at heart, you know? But... They don't abide in what the stop sign's teaching. That's what it means to abide in Jesus. It means to yield yourself to the things that he says. Now, how can I tell if you're abiding? It's because this fruit is being produced, and this fruit is produced as you abide, as you yield to Jesus, as you live a life trusting in Jesus Christ. Right? Then you start to produce fruit. Now, that isn't the only fruit that gets produced. Also, you, you begin you know, witnessing. You begin fulfilling the Great Commission. You begin serving when there are opportunities for the church to serve, right? It isn't just a self-serving thing. It's about serving Christ. And that's evidence that you're abiding in him, that you're producing fruit. And so that's the whole picture. There's Jesus comes to them, or comes to this tree, representing Israel, hasn't been producing fruit. And so he says, curse it. And then judgment comes on Israel 
uh, shortly after. Now, verse 20, when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. So they come and they see this miraculous thing. How in the world did this happen? And Jesus essentially says it came through a prayer of faith and trust. You know, Jesus is abiding in his father. He's abiding in the truth. And this is a prayer of faith. And he's telling them um, that, uh, you know, and, and he makes this amazing promise, right? What a promise there in verse 22. Whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now, let me ask you a question. Because that's like somebody's life verse right there. It's somebody's favorite verse, I'm sure, right? Who's he talking to? Disciples. A disciple is somebody that has denied themselves, picked up their cross, and followed Jesus. So a disciple's desires are the will of God. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Thy will be done, thy kingdom come. A disciple's desire, a Christian disciple's desire, is that God's will be done. And so now when I pray, things that I know are God's will, bank on it. Bank on it. All the time. And I don't need to have wavering faith if I can look in this book and see that God has promised something to me, not something to Israel, but if I can see that it's something that's promised to me, or if God has given me a word, he's promised something to me, I can stand on that and I can, I can just count on it, right? That's an amazing promise. But that promise isn't for everybody. This isn't for people that believe they're going to pray for a Maserati and it's going to show up in their garage, you know what I mean? Like, that's just foolishness, you know? But what a precious promise, though, to a Christian, right? What a precious promise that you can, uh, whatever you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Now, if you're a disciple, that's for you. Maybe you want to become a disciple today. Maybe you want to abide. Maybe you want to bear fruit. Maybe you've never come to that place of abiding in Christ, where you've actually yielded yourself to Jesus Christ. You know, maybe, maybe Christianity has been a self-serving thing for you. Maybe it has. Maybe it's all been about, what can I get out of it? Granted, you get a lot out of it. God he's, gives you abundantly more than you could ever ask or think. But maybe Christianity to you has all just been a self-serving sort of thing. And maybe you've never come to the place where you've dropped your agenda to pick up his agenda. Right? Maybe you want that promise to apply to you, that anything that you uh, read it there in verse 22, whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. He's saying that to disciples. This isn't a promise of material health and wealth and blessing, although he may give you those things, but he may not. Edward that was here speaking a couple of weeks ago that ministers to Christians that like where he teaches them how to die in South Sudan because it's so violent over there. That promise, you know, uh, you know, how do you think the prosperity, health, and wealth, and gospel, and all that stuff applies to those people? It doesn't apply to those people because it's not a real gospel, right? Maybe you want to become that kind of disciple today, where you drop your agenda and you pick up Jesus' agenda, wherever that leads you. You can.
So in conclusion, I just want to make three points here about this passage today. First of all, Jesus enters into Jerusalem, right? And then he cleanses the temple and then he curses the fig tree. Now here are three applications for us. Maybe you don't know Jesus today as the lowly, humble king, right? There are a lot of people that grew up with like a harsh God in their life or a harsh God idea. I did. My grandpa always threatened me with the good Lord. It was like an oxymoron. He always says, if you keep doing that, the good Lord's going to get you. And I'm like... I don't see anything good about this guy that you're talking about. You know, the good Lord, he's going to smite you for, you know, for this and that. And, um, you know, and you can't get away from that. You read the Old Testament and you read, you read the Bible and you read the book of Revelation. And um, you see that there is certainly a time when God brings judgment upon uh, people for sin. And, but one thing that, that you notice is like the way that when God deals harshly, it's with nations of people that have had hundreds of years to repent, you know, because he's compassionate and he's long-suffering and he's all these things. But how does he deal with the individual? Have you ever paid attention to that? How does Jesus deal with the individual? A woman is dragged to his feet and thrown down on the ground and the Jews, the leaders, they said, this lady's caught in adultery. And Jesus uh, treats her with compassion and mercy. And he says, he who's without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. And then she looks up and said, uh, you know, Jesus said to her, where are your accusers? And they all left one by one. And Jesus said, just go sin no more. And he dealt with this lady with compassion and mercy. And he gave her grace because he's a lowly, humble king. He did the same thing with the lady at the well. He did the same thing with Peter. I want you to really think about this. He did the same thing with Peter, a guy that denied that he even knew Jesus three times after he lied through his teeth and said he would never deny Jesus. And he and all the disciples said that. And, and he denied him. And Jesus restored him because Jesus is the humble, lowly king. That's the Jesus you need to know today is the humble, lowly king, Jesus, that wants to deal with you with compassion and mercy. So that's the first thing. The next thing is he cleans house, right? Just like he came in to the temple in Jerusalem and he flipped over the tables of the money changers and those that are selling doves, he cleans house. He cleans house in the church, right? Praise God that this church has been built on nothing but the word of God and the spirit of God and no gimmick. I'm, I'm not trying to elevate what we're doing here or anything by any means. I'm just praising God because he's, he, he cleansed. There's no gimmick. There's no merchandise, you know? And God, God helped the American church that he would come in and flip the tables over of those that have turned it into a money thing, right? Because it's despicable, right? Now, not only do we need Jesus cleansing ministry in the church, we need Jesus cleansing ministry in our own hearts. Because like that song says, I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing that I made it. I'm going back to the heart of worship. Hear that song? I used to have a problem with that song. Because I was like, I don't know. I don't ever make worship something that shouldn't be. And then when I really started to examine myself, it seems like there's this tendency with all of us to make everything self-serving. Like there's like almost like a magnetic force that's in all of us to make everything serve us. And we do that to Jesus. We think it's all about what he can do for me. And so we need his cleansing ministry to take that little commercialism out of our own hearts. And the last thing that we learn from Jesus cursing the fig tree is, man, God expects his people to produce fruit. You know? How do you produce fruit? Let me give you a, a few things, okay? The first of all, let's talk about John 15 again. It's just by abiding. 
in John 15, it says that if you abide in him and he in you, that you will produce much fruit, okay? Now, here's the thing about abiding. If I go and look at a vine and it's got grapes on it, that grape is not straining it out. Oh, I got to grow. You know, like it's, it's not, oh, come on. You know, it's just that it just abides. It just hangs in there, right? And the sun and the roots and all this stuff does everything. Right? The code of life that's in that plant is in the seed which God put in there and the thing grows through all the elements and that grape just hangs on, that fruit. So when I say, church, we need to produce fruit, I don't want you to go home and think, oh, I just gotta do some curls and come on, fruit, come on, you know? Like, man, just abide in the vine. You just hang in there and just trust Jesus. Spend time with Jesus Hang out with him. Yield to him. He will lead you. This is something that's taken me so long to figure out and I don't have it figured out. He will lead you. You could just release control to him. He will guide you. He will lead you. Like Pastor Chuck said, it's not about perspiration. It's about inspiration. So another thing to keep in mind about abiding and, and then now bearing fruit is you remember the parable of the soils? Okay, in the parable of the soils, there were the four types of hearts, right? The four types of soil. The one was the hardened heart where the seeds just bounce off and then the devil comes and swoops up the word of God and takes it right out of the heart. That's the person that listens to a whole sermon like this. Nothing happens, right? Reads the Bible, nothing happens because their heart is so hardened towards the things of God, just bounces right off of them. The other one was the shallow soil. They hear a sermon, they hear some sort of thing, they go to a youth rally, they go to a camp, they go somewhere and everybody gets all hyped up emotionally and they say, I'm on fire for Jesus. And then they, all of a sudden they get a notification on their phone and they're like, what, what, what about this Jesus thing? Or when it becomes difficult when, to abide in Jesus, it says that they wither away because of the persecution that comes upon them for the word. When it becomes hard to stand on, Christianity, those people fizzle out. That's the second type. So the first one's super hard, seed bounces off it. Second one springs up right away, emotional sort of response, but when it gets difficult, they wither. What about the third one? The third one, the thorns, right? The word of God comes into the heart, takes root, starts coming up, but this garden is so filled with weeds that it never produces fruit. What are the weeds? Jesus answers. He says, it's the cares of this world. It's tragic that there are many people in churches that have the root. It's growing, but there's never going to be any fruit until they get out and they start hoeing that garden and they start pulling that stuff out and they start pulling the weeds out and they start cultivating or else that's not ever going to grow. You say, well, how do I cultivate? It, listen, it's the cares of the world. What do you do with your free time? You know, how about Proverbs where it says, guard the heart, guard your heart, right? So if I take and I just let every, everything come into my heart, uh, all these different cares of the world, I'm, I'm concerned about money, I'm concerned about relationships, my hobbies, I'm concerned about every, I'm concerned about how I look, I'm concerned about, you know, you name it. All those things are like weeds that are choking out the fruit production in my life. 
So if you want to be obedient to what Jesus says, you want to honor God and you want to abide and produce fruit, um, first of all, you've got to abide, but then you've also got to keep a watch on your heart and you've got to guard your heart so it doesn't get filled up with the cares of the world. You know, and that's a choice that you and I can make. I can choose to have a heart that's free from the cares of the world and just put my focus on Jesus and have him in the right place in my life. Or I can be all preoccupied with all this other stuff that's going on. Which, by the way, it's hard not to be in 2022 because, man, every single one of us in here is, like, glued to our phones. And I'm just as guilty as anybody else. I'm not trying to condemn you, but really, really hard, really, really hard to not have the cares of the world get in your life. You know? And I will guarantee you, most of the app makers, YouTube, Google, um, Snapchat, those people could give a rip whether you follow Jesus or not. You know, they just want you to be glued to what they do. So, those three things. He comes in humbly, he cleans house, praise the Lord, and he expects us to produce fruit. So, Lord, help us to that end, and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.